you want to turn again in your Bibles, uh, this time into the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to carry on reading in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and through into Hebrews chapter 10 as well. Hopefully as you uh, listened to that reading from Leviticus chapter 16, you noticed that there was a fair bit in it about blood and sacrifices. Uh, And uh, as we go on and read in Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10, again, there's going to be a fair bit of discussion about uh, blood and sacrifices. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9 and the part of chapter 10 that we're reading, there's 13 different references to blood, uh, as well as description of sacrifices generally. And uh, it's probably fair to say, I think, for most of us that the language of these chapters sounds pretty foreign to us. Uh, these concepts of uh, sacrifice and blood, it's not something that we typically see happening every day in our lives today. And in a way, that demonstrates the point that, that Josh was referring to earlier in the, the service. And as we're going to see as we go through these chapters, the reason that it does seem uh, foreign to us is because all of these blood sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant were done away with, were fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus' blood for us. And so that's why when we come to a chapter like Hebrews chapter 9 that we're looking at today, Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, and it talks about these blood sacrifices, it's not part of our everyday life because it doesn't need to be. Praise God, because Jesus died for our sins and he shed his blood for us. So we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 9 and through chapter 10 as well into verse 18. Hear now the word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second... Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure 
and sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Well, let's pray as we come to spend some time thinking about this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for how it demonstrates clearly to us how Jesus is the one who has saved us from our sins and brought us back to you. We pray that you'd bless this time this morning. We pray that you would be by your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. We pray that you'd help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ through the time that we spend together this morning. And also that you would grant us the peace of knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we are purified and cleansed through Jesus and through what he has done for us. So bless this time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel uh, embarrassed or ashamed to be a Christian? I think if you look sort of over the years of the last 2,000 years, the history of the Christian church, the growth of Christianity around the world probably sort of ebbed and flows, flowed in different places around the world in terms of uh, sort of how comfortable you might feel in society identifying as a Christian. And I'd say it's fair to say that at the moment in our society, uh, it's it's waning in the sense that it's probably more embarrassing uh, to be a Christian, to identify yourself as a Christian than perhaps what it has been uh, in the last few hundred years, at least in the West. Uh, and so there's sort of always a subtle pressure on us uh, from the world around us. Uh, uh, do you really want to stand up for Christianity, do you really want to put yourself forward as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, if that's what it's like for us, uh, it was even more so, I think, for the Christians who were the original audience for this letter, the book of Hebrews. Uh, this letter, just to recap, it's probably written in the 60s AD, so around about 30 years after Jesus was crucified. It's probably written to mostly Jewish Christians, in other words, people who had been part of the Jewish community 
uh, following God as part of the Jewish community, but after hearing the message of Christ and his death and resurrection, they had, um, they had transferred, they had put their faith in Jesus, they had continued with their faith in Jesus, and uh, so that had sort of separated them off from the Jewish community from which they had come. And in the early days, we, we've seen it, some glimpses of it earlier, and we're going to see more of it as we continue through the book of Hebrews they had suffered some fairly serious persecution for that decision to follow Jesus. Uh, and they had experienced the loss of possessions, being thrown into jail, various different things as a consequence of that decision to follow Jesus. And, and we don't know exactly who the letter was written to and where they were and how long they had been Christians. But it seems as though we're now a bit further down the road. Uh, it's not evident from the letter that there's any uh, massive persecution that they're facing at exactly that point in time, but it's more the ongoing uh, pressure and perhaps shame of being called a Christian, being called a follower of Jesus. There were in places persecutions still happening, and in the 60s some quite serious persecutions broke out, uh, but more, as much as anything else, it seems as though it was just the ongoing pressure of following Jesus in the face of uh, not being welcome uh, in the, the community around them. So you compare that to the Jewish religion. Uh, the, Jew, the Jewish people had a very distinct and strong identity in uh, the world around them, in the Roman Empire, but they were, the, the Jewish religion did have some recognition at this time at least. Uh, and so to be a Jew... In the Roman Empire was a reasonably comfortable position to be, but as a Christian, the religion didn't have that same recognition, and so you were exposed to both um, scorn and, in some cases, persecution from the Jewish community that they'd come out of, and from the Roman uh, authorities throughout the Roman Empire. And so there's this ongoing pressure on them: Is this really the right way to go? Is this really the path that they want to follow? Or could they retreat back into the Jewish practices that they had come out of? Uh, and, I mean, that, that had been acceptable to God for 1,400 years at least. So what was wrong with going back uh, to those old ways, what Josh referred to as the old promises, uh, and what we refer to as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant? And so that's sort of the setting, and we've been working through the book of Hebrews and seeing all of these ways in which the writer is telling them, no, it's not okay to go back. If you give up on Jesus, you give up on everything that matters. And we're coming to something of a culmination of that uh, explanation that the writer has been giving them. And so in chapters 9 and 10, this is really sort of the high point of the explanation of why it's so critical that they not give up on Jesus. So we're going to work our way through the passage. It's a long passage, uh, and so we won't be able to dwell in detail on each verse, but we're going to work through it and um, try and uh, give the sense of the passage. And as we do that, what we're going to see is that Jesus answers our greatest need in a way that the old covenant Never could, because the old covenant was a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. And the way that gets unpacked in these verses makes it very clear. 
The Old Covenant was a temporary uh, state of affairs put in place for the people of Israel as a shadow of what was one day going to come when Jesus arrived. And once Jesus arrived, it was fulfilled and um, those practices are no longer applicable. The Old Testament worship practices could neither purify our consciences nor bring us into the presence of God because they were only a shadow pointing God's people to the true sacrifice. But Jesus' sacrifice perfectly cleanses us from our sins and restores us to access to God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. That's the sort of the big idea, I guess, in a paragraph or so, of what we're looking at. Jesus Christ answers our greatest needs in a way that the Old Testament practices, worship practices, never could. So let's look again just at the start of the passage there. And you see in the first few verses, we're looking at verses 1 through 5, that there's this description of the tent of meeting, the Old Testament tent of meeting. So let's read that again. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered it on all sides with gold, in which was a holy urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So this passage starts off with a description of the Old Testament tabernacle. This was the place, that uh, a tent that it was erected, constructed and erected at the heart of the Israelite camp. So when Moses first brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, and then they, they heard the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and then they traveled through the wilderness, God was with them in the midst of their travels. And so this tent was uh, erected. In the middle of the camp, it was erected. And it was the place where the presence of God was manifested in the, the middle of his people. It was this idea that God was dwelling in the midst of his people. Uh, and so if we go back a step, go back right to uh, the start of the book of Genesis and the, uh, the, the creation of the world and the creation of Adam and Eve. And then you go to Genesis chapter 3 and you have Adam and Eve sinning. And we see them being banished from the presence of God. And it's the first time we see this idea that because of sin, if they, the punishment for sin is death, and when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God banished them from his presence. So he sent them out of the Garden of Eden, where up until that point he had dwelt with them and fellowshiped with them, and he sent them out of his presence. Uh, and so there's a sense from that point on in the Bible that... Uh, there's this loss of access to God because of our sin. There's this, the way that our sin prevents us from coming to God. And then you go f forward into, later into the book of Genesis. And Josh read from Genesis chapter 17 and, and God making that covenant with Abraham. And he promised various things. But one of the things you would have seen in there was that God promised to be a God to Abraham's descendants. That he would be their God. And so then when 
God rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, then we see with the building of this tent, this promise, God's covenant, uh, coming to its first fulfillment in the sense that God was now dwelling with his people. In the midst of their camp, there was a tent which manifested the presence of God. But there was a problem. And that's what we're going to see as we unpack this in the rest of this chapter. There was a problem with God dwelling in the midst of his people in this tent of meeting. And the problem was that they, like us, were still sinners, still sinful people, still unholy people. And God is a holy God. And sinful people couldn't come into the presence of a holy God uh, because our own sins, every, every sort of cell in our body convicts us of the guilt of our sins. And so we have this picture of God's presence with his people and this tent being set up in the middle of the Israelite camp. And yet what we also see is, although there's this picture of God's presence with his people, because of our sin, really extreme limits have to be put on the access that the people had to God. And so that's what we're going to see being introduced as we carry on. And so what we've got so far in our passage is that the writer has just described that tent. So for the people back then who had come out of that Jewish background, this would have been familiar to them and the concept of God dwelling with his people. And so the writer has described that. And now he's going to go on and say, although that was true, although this was a picture of God dwelling with his people, there were these limits on it. So that's what we see in verse 6. And so we'll just read through the next section. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, so we've started with this description of the tent of meeting where God dwelt in the midst of his people, manifested his presence, And now we move on to what happened in that tent. And it's a description of the fact that there was this limited access to God for the priests, and in particular for the high priest, but in really limited circumstances. And so that's what's being described here. And so what happened at the tent of meeting? There was a big court around the outside of it, and the people of Israel would bring sacrifices, sin offerings and burnt offerings and other offerings. They'd bring um, bulls and, and, and sheep and, and, and sacrifice these offerings as a, um, as a sacrifice for their sins. Their different offerings meant different things, but one, one of the central focuses on it, of it was sacrifices for their sins. And so the priests, the sons of Aaron, would perform these sacrifices. They would kill the animals and, and then they would take the blood into the tent of meeting 
And the tent of meeting itself was divided into two parts. There was a part which priests could go into and take the various sacrifices. And then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain there was what was called the most holy place. And that was where the Ark of the Covenant was, was located. And that was the picture of the specific place where God manifested his presence in the tent of meeting. And what the writer here is saying is picking up on that, what we read in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, that only the high priest could go into the holy place, the most holy place, and only once a year. And when we read back in, in Leviticus chapter 16, perhaps you noticed in the first few verses, if you turn back there, the circumstances that describe what's going on with um, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Now earlier in the, back, in the book of Leviticus, after the, the, uh, the tabernacle had been set up and the first sacrifices were carried out, two of Aaron's sons had carried out some kind of sacrifice and, and it appears from these verses perhaps even gone into the most holy place in the temple themselves and they had died uh, as, a, as an immediate consequence of what they had done. Uh, and this, uh, as you can imagine, had a pretty uh, a profound effect on Aaron and the people. But it was, again, it was this picture of the fact that uh, 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 the access to God was still limited and that um, sinful people can't come into the presence of a holy God. And so in Leviticus chapter 16, when it's this description of the Day of Atonement and the one day a year when the high priest can go into the most holy place, the context for it is God telling Moses that this is, the, this is the limited way that Aaron can come into my presence. And if he does it this way, he won't die. But otherwise, what could they expect if they tried to go into the presence of God in the most holy place? They could expect death. And that's what, that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is picking up in chapter 9. So that the priests would regularly, every day, go into the first part of the tent of meeting and they'd offer sacrifices of various kinds uh, for the people. But into the most holy place, the high priest would only go once a year and not without taking blood. And just notice there, it, it describes that as well. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, for his own sins, and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so this was a once-a-year thing. Yom Kippur, it was the once a year sacrifice for all of the sins, uh, and certainly people did intentional sins, but also all of the things that people had done throughout the year that they weren't even aware of that were failures to follow God uh, and obey his law. And so once a year there was this sacrifice in the, and, and the high priest would go into the most holy place uh, with the blood of that sacrifice. And what the, what the writer of the, the book of Hebrews is telling us is that all of this, it seems very elaborate and it's hard for us to understand, but one, one of the main things that this demonstrated was that although God had established his covenant with his people and although he had rescued them from the land of Egypt and from the captivity there and had now established his presence with them, yet they did not have full access to God. The access to God was limited and that's what we see in verse 8. 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So their access to God was limited. Only the high priest and only once a year and only with the blood of sacrifices for his sins and for the sins of the people. And the writer tells us in verse 9 that these sacrifices and this arrangement could not perfect the conscience of the worshipper. In other words, it didn't actually deal with our sins. It wasn't able to remove our sins from us. Okay, so Old Testament system, there was a sense and in, in a picture in some ways of access to God, but very limited. And so then in verse 11, he starts this comparison. Well, if that's what it was like in the Old Testament system, what do we have with Jesus? What do we have in the New Covenant? What do we have in the New Testament system? And so that's what we see in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the contrast is being made. The Old Testament priests, and in particular the high priest once a year, would go into the earthly tent that had been made by the people of Israel in, in, in accordance with what God had commanded them to do. And it gave us this picture of access to God, but still very limited. But Jesus Christ, when he came, entered straight into the heavenly presence of God. And he came not needing the blood of animals to atone for his sins because he was out, was without sin, but he brought his own blood, his death on the cross. He brought that into the presence of God thus securing an eternal redemption for the people of God. And so the writer explains that to us in verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, what he's, what he's saying is that the Old Testament sacrifices dealt with, they, they gave us a ritual cleansing on the outside, but Jesus' death uh, and his presentation of his blood to God fully purifies our consciences, fully deals with our sins when we put our trust in him. We don't have time to unpack all of the ways that this is sort of fleshed out in the rest of this chapter, but you'll see it coming up over and over again uh, in the verses that follow. Um, so that in, in chapter 10, for example, uh, in the first verses, it talks about how the law was a shadow of the things to come and how um, if the law had been more than that, uh, in verse 2, the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So that, that idea that there was this repetition in the Old Testament. There were the daily sacrifices. And once a year, every year, there was Yom Kippur and this confession of, of the, the ongoing need for the shedding of blood for their sins because their sins hadn't been dealt with. But then we see that when Christ came, this is in, in chapter 10, in, in particular in verse 8, um, when Christ came and, and gave himself as a sacrifice, 
Uh, in verse 9, it says, He does away with the first in order to establish, and by, uh, establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he's making this distinction. The Old Testament sacrifices didn't actually deal with sin, and we know that because they had to repeat them over and over again. But the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was a once-for-all-time sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he makes that point again in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then in verse 14, the same conclusion, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then it refers back to the passage that Josh talked about a couple of weeks ago from Jeremiah chapter 31 um, and the covenant, the new covenant. And verse 17, quoting from that passage, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And the author concludes, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So he's making this contrast between the Old Testament system that was unable to remove sin and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us that fully and finally dealt with our sin. And so uh, I suppose when you, when you put it like that, when you look at it like that, uh, it, seems, it seems pretty clear cut. Why, why wouldn't you follow Jesus? Uh, you, you, why, why, would, why would you want to go back to those, uh, to those Old Testament practices? What was the problem? Well, the, and, and the problem is actually sort of emphasized uh, in a couple of words, a couple of phrases that we see in chapter 10 midway through the passage. So if you look again at, uh, at verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10, it says, describing how Jesus had given himself for us, it says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified. In other words, those who have placed their faith in Jesus have been made holy. We are holy before a holy God. And if we are holy before a holy God, we can come into his presence. We can dwell with him. Everything that went wrong with Adam and Eve has been restored, has been undone. We can come back to God, have been sanctified. And yet, if you go down to verse 14, it says something a little bit different. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Instead of have been sanctified, which is past tense language, and it's, it's the co concept of something that's been completed, it's finished, it's done, nothing further needed. But now, in verse 14, are being sanctified. We are being sanctified. So is it completed or is it not completed? And we get a little bit more of a clue about what's going on here if we jump back into chapter 9 because um, the last couple of verses of chapter 9, we read, Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once 
to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What we see described in these verses, and we see it elsewhere throughout the New Testament as well, is a picture of the fact that what God has accomplished for us through Jesus is, in one sense, fully complete. But in another sense, we're still looking forward to a future fulfillment of it. In other words, Jesus, when he died for our sins, he fully paid for our sins. We are fully forgiven. We, we don't need to feel guilty for the wrong things that we've done anymore. We confess them to God in faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And we have got confidence that God has forgiven us and that he does not remember those sins and hold them against us. We are fully forgiven. That's true. It's complete. It's done. And yet here we are, still sinning, still living in this life, not, not having that strong sense. Maybe you get glimpses of it every now and then, of the fact that we dwell in the presence of God, that Jesus, uh, our head, is in the presence of God and that he's taken us with him into the presence of God. Maybe you sometimes get glimpses of that truth. But more often, our life feels like it's a painful struggle with our own sin with the sins of those around us, and we don't necessarily feel that closeness to God. We have his Holy Spirit working in us, but we don't feel the full fulfillment of being able to come back into the presence of God and live with him again, to live the way that he made us to live, like Josh was talking about before. And so we look at, sometimes we look at Christianity and we look at Jesus and the message of the cross and resurrection And sometimes when we compare that to what we're experiencing in our lives, it seems underwhelming. It's hard to see the full picture of what's going on. And that was certainly the case for these people that this letter was being written to. And they had experienced some pretty hard things in their lives. Again, as we're going to see as we go through through the book, uh, in terms of imprisonment and the loss of their possessions, they had suffered a lot for the name of Jesus. And the church in those days probably seemed, um, in, in many ways, a bit pathetic. Uh, you know, what was, what was this group of Christians against the might of the Roman Empire and coming out of the Jewish religion? And they don't even have, you know, the sacrifices and all of the sort of the ceremony that went with the, the Jewish religion. It's a group of poor slaves and struggling people desperately trying to pass on the message of the gospel and live their lives as followers of God, uh, a pretty small group in the context of uh, those early days of the church. And yes, the church grew and, and Christianity spread. Uh, and that picture changed. But for us today as well, sometimes we feel a little bit like that early uh, church and these Christians that the letter is written to uh, in a place like New Zealand where many people have no, no faith in, in, in Jesus and very little knowledge of Jesus and don't see any value in following Jesus and learning about him, it can feel that way to us as well, that it's kind of pathetic. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, the way that God seems to work very often is through weakness uh, and through our weaknesses. And so, although on paper, when you see that comparison between the what, what happened under the Old Testament sacrificial system and what happened with Jesus. On paper, you look at it and it makes sense. 
but we don't always feel it. And the writer of this letter to the people and, uh, that he's writing to knows that they are not feeling it necessarily and he's wanting to encourage them and remind them. You may not be able to see it now, but Jesus Christ, the perfect uh, God-man who gave himself for us, has, has risen from the dead, has gone into the presence of God himself, has offered his blood as a sacrifice for our sins and has secured our access to God. And maybe you're not feeling that today, but that's the truth that we live under. And those are the promises that we can take hold of. And so he's wanting to encourage them, whatever struggles they were facing, to keep going, to keep pursuing Jesus. And we can take that same encouragement ourselves. I don't know what struggles all of us are facing and and what pressures you are feeling uh, to take a step back and to move away from the promises that we have in Jesus But the encouragement of this passage is to hold on to those promises, come back to them, because our greatest need is to be restored to the presence of our holy God, to be able to live with our creator, to be able to experience the blessing of knowing him. And Jesus Christ has made that possible. He has, for those who put their trust in him, we are sanctified. He has dealt with our sins. We may not feel it and see it, fully yet but that is the truth and that's the truth that we need to hold to uh, under the pressures of this life so we're going to finish there in terms of the passage that we're looking at today Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 I think next week or in the next few weeks Josh is going to carry on uh, in in chapter 10 and it's there that we the author really starts applying it and telling us well what does it mean what do these truths mean Uh, about uh, Jesus and what he has done for us. But I just want to finish again by just encouraging you not to lose sight in the midst of all of the weight and the struggle and the pressures of the world around you, not to lose sight of the hope that we have in Jesus and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, We thank you for the people that this letter was written to uh, and and for what uh, they were willing to suffer to to follow Jesus. And we thank you that because uh, people like that were willing to follow Jesus in the face of persecution and oppression, uh, it's because of of their faithfulness that, uh, that we are here today following you because of faithful Christians in in lowly circumstances through the years who committed to you in faith, continued to follow you, that the message of the gospel spread. And as we face those same pressures today, and the world pushes in on us and tells us that you're crazy to be a Christian, we pray that you would encourage us and help us to persevere in the same way by looking to Jesus by seeing his perfect sinless life and his death in our place. I pray that you'd help us to know that he sits with you now at your right hand and that his blood has been offered to you in full payment of all our sins. And so all that we know that is wrong about us is forgiven through Jesus as we put our faith in him. Help us to trust in that truth and to be encouraged by it and to walk by it Day by day, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.